Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My God, if you'd offered me arena tours and, um, and, and, and millions of pounds or... Four kids, still married, and Tom's who he is. I mean, hundred percent, I'd have chosen that. Hundred percent, because because my, my my comedy is my hobby, really, and I love being a comedian, love being a humorist. But I've been a far more successful dad than I have been comedian, and that is more important to me than than anything. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment who are here to share their wisdom and their use of humour with you. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is an award-winning stand-up comedian, author and screenwriter. With a collection of hugely impressive credits on his CV, he's built a career on the stage, screen and radio. From his beginnings, winning Best Newcomer at Edinburgh, he has become one of the nation's most popular and well-regarded performers. When he's not writing captivating and comedy-packed books, he has been a regular guest on shows like Have I Got News For You and Never Mind The Buzzcocks. He is the author of seven, soon to be eight, brilliant books, including The Fruit Bowl, I, Gabriel and Only in America, just to name a few. His book, Eclipsed, is a first-hand account of what it is like to have a superhero for a son. Although it does run in his family, we are thrilled that he is the Holland that could swing by for a chat. Dominic Holland, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Paul, lovely to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. No, it's an absolute pleasure and uh, to, to see you again, see you looking so well and fit. <laughs> Post-lockdown, yes. No, I'm fine, actually, Paul. I, I, as ever, I am full of vim and verve. I'm ever determined to confound the odds and to, to use humour, to use my humour to propagate um, a career. You know, I, I, I like the... I like the endeavour nature of being a stand-up comedian, being a humorist, being a, being a someone who writes, and, and and basically having output. It's all it's all off my bat, and I quite enjoy that that um, that equation. 
Well, yeah, you are one of the most creative people I know because not only as stand up, you write books, you, uh, <laughs> you write, but you're always on it. You're always diligently doing something and think. So I want to take you back to um, when you were very young. Uh, and I've heard you say in the past that you first found out that you, you could make people laugh when you were very young. Was humour actually valued in your family? Um, well, I was known for being funny. And I think my, that might be because I was definitely not academic compared to my, my siblings. So Don was the funny one, which is a polite way of saying Don was a bit thick. <laughs> <laughs> um, so whether, whether it was valued, certainly valued by my mum, who it was always a big advocate of Dominic's personality, me, my personality. Um, but it, it was my dad was very academic. And it, I remember when I, when I told my, my dad I, I wanted to, I thought I better tell my, I'd done a degree, I'd done a master's degree, and I was doing stand up and I was doing well. I was obviously able to do it. Rooms were laughing, promoters were going, this guy can do it. And I called my dad in. I said, Dad, I want to have a word with you. And my dad's face fell and he thought, okay, there's either two things coming here. My son's gay. My son, my son's gay. He's going to tell me he's gay. Okay. Or my son's uh, having a baby. He's going to tell me he's having a baby. And then I said, Dad, I'm going to be a comedian. <laughs> and I'm not sure whether he whether he thought that was 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 better than than having a child or and he was really shocked. But he was actually quite supportive and quite well, you know, son. If that's what you want to do, then he was he was he he, he wasn't such a leap because I you know humor was something which followed me, you know, and, and was around me. People used to say, teachers would say, Holland is funny. People at school would say, Holland is funny, you know? And so it wasn't such a leap, Paul, to try and craft a career out of, out of humour. But it was still a shock to them because I think your dad was a teacher, your mum was yeah. a nurse, and, yeah. and I think your brother became a lawyer, didn't he? Yeah, as, as well. two, two brothers are lawyers. My sister was uh, a geologist, is a geologist, or a geologist went into town planning. So he sort of ordered very ordinary professions. And then obviously me, very left field, you know, I mean, doing gigs in pubs, you know, that's what I was doing. I was getting paid in cash as you were back in the day, doing the comedy store was cash. It was a very sort of almost not quite clandestine, really, you know, um, not, not very official. There was no career arc. You, you know, you know, I remember before I did stand up comedy, I didn't have any idea that you could be a, a professional stand-up comedian who nobody had ever heard of. I just thought there were famous comedians and that was it. I thought you were either Jasper Carrot or there's nothing. But I didn't below, I didn't understand below Jasper and Ben Elton were myriad clubs and people who were funny and making a living. So as soon as, as, soon as I realised that, I went to the comedy store and I spoke to Mike Haley, who'd smashed this gig. Mike was a stand-up, great stand-up. I remember Mike very, very well. And great stand-up. Great stand-up. And I went up to him afterwards, the gig, and I, you know, I, I sort of congratulated him and told him, how, I, I, thought, I thought it was really good. And I told him, I said, how, how, how can I do a gig here? It was, it was the comedy store, the old comedy store in Leicester Square. Yeah, Leicester Square. And he said, no, 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 you can't start here. This is where you end up. This is five years in. You know, you've got to go to the small clubs. And I said, well, where, where are the small clubs? He said, buy time out, which is no longer, no longer going, of course. And I just couldn't believe it. I opened the comedy section. I thought, my God, there's loads of pubs in London all doing comedy nights. And that, for me, was, was an epiphany for me. And I thought, well, I'm gonna, this is definitely what I'm going to do. But I, I'm interested to uh, go back. You said your 
father relaxed about it. My father didn't relax about it until I'd had um, some serious success at it. My father was an economist and so therefore a statistician. And he always, he, he presumed that people like you and I were all actors because that's the only word he knew. And yes. he said, he used to always say to me, 95% of all actors are out of work at any one time. <laughs> I think it's higher now, isn't it? Um... <laughs> Probably. Because actually, really, parents just want their children to be safe. You as a parent of four uh, children, yeah. you want them to be safe. So going into these careers was a, a, an enormous leap in the dark for them, wasn't it? It, it was. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't a cherub. I would have been 22 or three. So I was an adult um, and they probably felt it probably was a phase. They probably thought Dominic's just trying this out, you know, and they never really got their heads around it becoming a career, you know, because it is precarious. And I have to say, I agree with you. The odds are against when I was back in the day at Jackson's Lane in, in London, there were about 30 wannabes. I was one of the wannabes and we had illustrious teachers like Eddie Izzard would come along and share with us his wisdom. And I don't think any of those guys are working now. So I'm the only person out of that that class who had any semblance of a career at all. And none of them are are, are doing any gigs at all. So it is pretty attritional. Um, And, but, you know, my parents, you say you want your kids to be, to be safe. I I would disagree with that. I think you want your kids to be happy. Okay. I think the most important thing for your children is that they are content and, and that's a big, that's a big win. And, and I would never have been happy being a lawyer. It's too ordered. Not, I'm not organized enough. I haven't got, a, I haven't got that kind of processor. You know, I don't retain information. I can't recall things when I need to. I'm pretty eloquent and I speak well, but that, you know, that, that, that's no substitute for having the memory and the process of, for that very ordered mind. And so I, I definitely am doing what I should be doing for a living. And, and I, my parents, would have been pleased that Dom's happy, you know, and, and look, I made a living and I made, I made a lot of money as a stand-up comedian. I mean, I was going around the world. I was playing the biggest rooms. Even if I hadn't had that success, I think my parents would have still been pleased. That I was happy Paul. you know? No, no, it's interesting from a humorology perspective uh, from the project. I, I think you're right. Uh, I would put it uh, somewhere in the middle of happy and safe. Yeah. Because really, uh, I think they, they don't want, uh, maybe we're in the lucky position whereby we can let our kids go out and have a go. But uh, our parents' generation, it, was, it wasn't quite like that, where you could be happy-go-lucky and try things out. Oh. And, and I think we are a lucky generation in that, that way. Well, I, I think we're all disposed to harking back, thinking we, we've had it the best. I think that's a bit of a human, hu, cliche, cliche of human nature, really. It felt much more like people who wanted to do it and felt they could do it. Now it feels much more like that's a route. I can become a, a, you know, an influencer or a famous person via comedy because I've got the balls to do it. And it is about having balls because it's a scary thing. If you've got the guts to do it, you can identify you can sort of cobble together an act and there are people who've become famous and and i watch them and i think i know there's no common innate comedy ability there at all it's just a sort of a front if you like and um i do think back in the day it was much more it felt more authentic i'm, I'm interested to that 
just people doing it for a living. I, I, I understand that. But do you think there's that uh, we had Omid, Omid Jalili on the yeah. show, show and he said comedians are people who need the laughter of strangers to validate us. We're all mentally ill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly think I certainly think there's frailties in comedians. Yeah. I mean, I think all of us have mental frailties and mental blocks. I mean, I definitely have them. I have glitches. My wife says, God, you're so quirky. I think comedians are quirky people. But I don't believe that. I don't need the affirmation of laughter. What I need, what, what, I, get, what I get off on, if you like, is being able to do it. And, and, and I, I, it's intoxicating to, to, to come up with a line and, and people respond to it. And it's, it's, it's very, very seductive. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the whole comedian thing uh, is, uh, I mean, it's a weird concept, isn't it? it is. uh, 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 making people it, do an involuntary act in a darkened room. Yes, no, it, it's definitely weird. It's a mad thing to do. The idea, the notion that we're going to go along tonight and have a funny person make us mm. laugh. It's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of mad thing because we all laugh anyway. If you go out with your friends to, for a curry and a, and a pint when we meet off, off the strand, people get together and they'll invariably laugh. So you don't need funny people because people are funny anyway. Humor exists. However, the prospect, the equation of a professional funny person, we're going to pay a tenner and for that, we're going to get some laughs is mad, but it's a, it's like Nikki last night is in New York. My wife's in New York with, with Tom and they went to a comedy show because New York is so famous for its comedy. And, and I was, I was really interested. Oh, how was it? And, and she said, oh, it was good. You know, some of the comics were good. Some of them were bad, as, as happens in all bills. Because comedy is, is a big part of our, you know, of the art scene. But why are we so drawn to people who make us laugh? What is it about the human psyche that, that needs that, do you think? Oh, gosh. I mean, that's a big question. And you're, you're asking the wrong guy. You're asking a, a philosophy um, uh, expert, but I think we wait, look. It's a, it will look. It, it, it is in essence joy, isn't it? Right. Laughter is joy. Okay. What's the best thing in the day outside eating? You'd say laughter, right? Yeah. I mean, you, f fueling yourself is the best thing, without question. Going for dinner is always going to trump. I mean, people would argue sex, but sex is something you do infrequently compared to laughter, and and laughter is the essence of living, right? Because it's joy, and if you can if you can laugh. I mean, I, I think, I think stand-up comedy is the most effective art form in terms of laughter because comedy films you might laugh twice, right? Yeah. I mean, you name me, a, you name me the last funny film you saw, Paul. The last two years. Oh no, nothing that okay. has made me laugh uh, so out loud. I went to see that um, movie, um, Phantom of the Open. Okay, which apparently is a, a, a riotous you know, English quaint sporting hero, underdog. And I sat there po-faced for, for a couple of hours. You know, it wasn't funny at all. It didn't make me laugh at all. You know, now, if you watched a stand-up comedian for two hours and you didn't laugh at all, wow, you'd be, there'd be a riot, right? So same with plays, same with, um, same with novels. I mean, I write fiction. I write comic fiction. But I think the best you're going to get from an entire novel is a couple of chuckles and lots of smiles. Whereas in stand-up comedy... It has to be audible. You have to actually make that audience physically laugh for that promoter to say he was a good stand-up. I'm booking him again. Well, it's instant feedback, isn't it? It's that feedback loop. that. It, it, yeah, it is. And the audience feed off you and, vi and vice versa. But it, 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 it's a huge hit rate. I mean, it's every... I reckon when I'm on stage doing a 20-minute set, I'm looking at a laugh every 20 seconds. When I do a show in Edinburgh, 
you sit down, I come on stage and within half a set, half a minute, you're laughing and you don't stop until 52 minutes and you, you laugh throughout. If you don't laugh throughout, then I've got material that should be, should be dropped. Cause I can't do, I, I don't have the confidence Paul, to stay on stage without laughs. Laughs are what punctuate my set. I mean, a lot of people listening to this, uh, are, most people listening to this won't be in comedy, but we'll have to stand up at some stage and, and, make a speech what what is your your best tip for being able to engage an audience and perhaps get a laugh out of them well okay is i've got to be a bit honest here paul i i have had some corporate people try and recruit me um to to do me too comedy comedy workshops i personally do not believe you can teach comedy okay i i i i, I think everyone can learn to swim but you can't all become adam Peaty. Okay, but you can learn how not to die. You can not drown. Okay, yeah. but I do not believe. I think comedy is innate, and I think it's instinctive. Um, um, but I, I do think there are some tricks that you can impart, and one of them is poise on stage. And and I always say to people, you must make eye contact, even if you're speaking to five hundred people. If you make eye contact with the people in the front row, there will be an engagement. If you avoid eye contact, then the audience will know. And, and I think there's a, there's a detachment there. And, and you're far better if you can involve people in your, in your performance. That's the first thing. And the second thing I would always say to people is you, it's all about, no, it's all about what you say, but it's also when you say it and when you pause. Um, so if, if there's a routine I used to show when I was doing these sort of workshops, and it's the bread rolls routine. If you can find that online, it's easily findable. Dominic Holland doing the bread rolls routine. And the laughs are always accentuated by, by my pause and when I deliver the line. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is I've, I set up the premise of we have bread rolls in restaurants all the time, and it's perfectly agreeable before a meal to have a bread roll, which you'd never do that at home because it would ruin your appetite. And, and so the audience know where I'm going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to now create a scenario where I'm at home having, we're about to have dinner. And my wife goes, do you want a bread roll? And I'll pull a funny face because hang on, we're going to, we're going to have dinner. And it's all in the pause because the audience yeah. know what I'm going to say. And, it, yeah. and it's the anticipation and it's the, the wait for that delivery that accentuates the laugh. So I, there are techniques and things I can show you, but I wouldn't be able, I don't believe I could take Joe Blow and say, right, Joe Blow, you've given me this amount of money. I've got three hours with you. I'm going to make you funnier. I, I just think, I just don't believe you can do that. Well, it's interesting because I get brought in from a psychological perspective and a performance perspective. And most of the time people are going, I've got to go on and be funny. And, <laughs> and, I, and I go, no, my job is to, is to actually make you, if the funny will come, when we see it and, uh, and yeah. natural, but if you're going on and going, I've got to open with a gag and you're not funny. And I, I think I agree. Cause uh, I mean, I think humor may well be a superpower, um, you know, yeah. you know in, it's certainly uh, powerful. Yeah. It's certainly powerful. Cause if we go back to when you were at school, you were already hearing funny and yeah. pretty much every comedian and, and, and funny person I know, we're hearing it really early and going, I know what the, the gag is here. When the teacher does that, I know where this belongs. Yes. It's instinctive. Isn't it's it? instinctive. Yes, it, it is. It is instinctive. And, and I, I think there's two things with, with funny Paul. I think there's, there's, there, are, there, there are people, there are people with 
um, who, who talk funny. So I talk funny. I've not been funny on this podcast because we're having a, a, you know, a serious conversation about life. And, and so I, I'm not being funny. So, but when I go on stage, I talk funny and I have inst- good instincts for comedy. And then there are people with funny bones who just are funny. Uh, and occasionally those things conspire or, or, or people have both. So yeah. I would say someone like Peter Kay has got funny bones. He's got a funny accent. He's got a funny look. He's a funny man. And he can say really funny. So those things all combine to create this almost an alchemy in terms of funny, in terms of if you see the audience cutaways of, of his gigs, they are helpless with laughter. Yeah. So that's a quite a rare combination. And then there are mainly people <clears throat> like me. Uh, Eddie Izzard is a good example. Not funny at all when you meet Eddie off stage. Eddie never makes you laugh off stage. <laughs> But when he goes on stage, he's peerless because he can be funny. He can say funny. But also with comedy, Paul, it's not just about being funny. It's about people who can laugh. There are certain people, quite unfortunate people, who just don't laugh. You know. And so what we need as comedians is we need people with good senses of humour who get it ah. and, and, and laugh and, and, and can emote and, and can, can enjoy the humour. You know, there is always people in the room. Sometimes you see people in the room and they carry audiences because they're so laughing so hard. They're they are almost having as big an impact on the gig as, as, as the comedian. I, I couldn't agree more because actually I think everybody's got a part because the whole humorology project is not just about how to be funnier. It's about how the whole infrastructure works. And by the way, being a good audience, you can be the most popular person in any company Crucial. by being a great audience and, yes. and laughing things in and, uh, and being supportive in that way. You'll be, become incredibly popular. You don't always have to be the person on broadcast. No, uh, no, quite. And, and, and people who, who are, have a good, a good my, my wife is a good example. Nikki is funny. She is comic, but my God, she loves humor. And she, when she laughs, she laughs. And it's, it's very attractive. Very attractive. People often say to me, God, you know, Nikki's got a real sunny disposition because she laughs and that's a real advantage and, 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 and joy. But humour, when it's done well with a great audience, you know, it's kind of special. It really is a special night. You, there's, no, there's no film as funny as a stand-up. There's no play as funny as a stand-up. And good stand-up comedy, if you think of the, the great routines back in the day, you know, the Moose routine from Woody Allen and and some of Seinfeld's observations, they are just, just beautiful. And I, I love the economy of com- comedy as well. I love the, I, I, I'm much less attracted to the shouty stand-ups we have now. We have lots of stand-ups who are very, very shouty and they almost browbeat their audience into laughter because they're determined that you're going to laugh and I will bash you over the head with my material. Whereas I like the comedians who don't need to do that. Woody Allen, Jerry Seinfeld, just very economic. They only use the words they need and that gives it, bigger punch you know just Seinfeld's line there's no such thing as family entertainment that's all he needs to say because what the kids like what the parents like what the wife likes what the husband's like that line is is a thing of beauty I think you know well I I was lucky enough to be invited to see Jerry Seinfeld play the the Hammersmith Apollo which was a very small gig and honestly whatever he did an hour and 20 there was not one word one look one movement out of place it was perfection it was a a haiku of comedy if there is such a thing yeah absolutely rich hall saw me at ballon one night and he said to me after he said dominic said dominic you are 
Britain's Jerry Seinfeld. And I, oh. and I was very flattered by that, especially coming from Rich. I know I when I see Seinfeld work, I think, gosh, he's so much better than me, you know, because because he has this extraordinary um, precision eye, better eye than me. And then he has, I think, a better delivery. So, you know, you have, you have to know where you are in a world of comedy. I'm a brilliant comedian on the way to the gig. I'm less good on stage because I get nervous. And my com- my comedic output is constrained by my lack of, I think, um, backing myself. And I think the most successful stand-ups aren't necessarily the funniest. I think they're the ones who back themselves. Well, uh, that's really interesting from a psychological perspective because uh, I would argue... Uh, because I always say to audiences at corporates, I always said, you know, there's two types of people in the world. There are those who get nervous and there are liars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, because- I would agree with that. Well, you, you were the one who said to me, Paul, you don't get nervous, you get excited, which I've, I, yeah. I, I, my, my son Tom uses that mantra now because um, he has to do some inordinately stressful things. But my, my nerves are something I have just to, had to accommodate. And they've been, they've been, um, They've tripped me up and they've, they've ruined certain moments for me when I was on the cusp of doing something bigger and I've got it wrong. I've, I've screwed it up. But you know what? They're part of who I am and my output is my output. I've done loads of gigs. I'm still gigging. I've written loads of books. I'm, I've got more plans for more things. And, you know, I go for these long dog walks. I've got this brilliant new routine, which I, I, if I do get it right on stage. I think it will be a bit of a could be an Edinburgh show. So, you know, I, I, I'm very excited at the prospect of being still in, still in the game, Paul. Will you describe yourself as actually quite shy and, and, and a diffident uh, sort of mm. person? Um, but there's that old saying that performance is the shy person's revenge on the world. Do, do you think that's true? Well, possibly. Certainly in my, in, in, in my uh, reckoning, Paul, I'm not, yeah, I, I'm certainly quite. Sh- well, I wouldn't say I'm shy, but I, I, I do not crave attention. Okay, I do not need to be listened to. So I played. I mean, there's a. We we have a charity that that we run from through through at at, at home via my son, and and there's a few local charities who I support, and of course they're constantly asking me to come along and present for them and do the auction, and I always find it quite invidious because I don't want to do that. You know, I do it for a living and I don't want to be at a social event and suddenly have to jump up and make everyone laugh. Um, so I do find it, I wouldn't say it's an ordeal, but it's something I have to do. And 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 that's why, I mean, it's a good segue, but, but that's why if you ask me what do I prefer doing, do I prefer being a stand-up comedian, prefer being a novelist or a writer? I would argue probably the latter because I can. there are no nerves involved. There is no performance involved. I can do it again. I can get it wrong and do it again. I can write a paragraph and change it. Whereas when you're on sta- on stage, you've got to get it right only once. But I, I, I'm interested to go back because uh, you talked about uh, it's the Brothers Trust, uh, yeah, is it, which is a wonderful charity which people should look up and support because you do wonderful work. But you find that quite difficult the the, the fact of actually uh, going up I do. and. I do, yeah, I find it quite difficult. I mean, I had to do an auction on, on Friday. Um, of course, everyone expects me to do an auction to sell the lots, but also to be funny. Yeah. So I find there's a pressure there, right? I can't just say, and this is the next lot, um, who, who's got £100? They want me to be funny, and I feel a pressure to be funny because people are sitting there with bated breath. He's a comedian. He's a professional comedian. He's going to be funny. And I find that quite onerous. 
because I can't do my act. I can't just go into a long story. So you're only on your wits. And I am witty. I am funny. And I can see things in the room. I can spot human. I can spot there's a laugh there. There's a laugh there. But but I don't relish it. I don't look forward to it, Paul. I'd rather they ask someone else. But I get why they ask me. Do you know, I've I've just thought of what you should do, because obviously I used to do comedy, but then I went into the realms of psychology. Yeah. And the great thing, (laughs) much simpler and also psychologically with an audience, if you go out and they they go, here's, uh, we'd like to welcome on stage the pitch doctor, Paul Barros. If you even have a semblance of funny, it hits much bigger because the yeah. expectation level yes. is really reduced. Oh, that's a really good point. That's really interesting because obviously I have the invidious position of please welcome on stage a professional funny man. Absolutely. Therefore, you better be bloody funny. Yeah. You know, uh, and I am thankfully I can do it, but I've got to be you ready. Are very. I've got to be ready, and it has to be. It has to be on my terms, and um, and so you know going on golf tours and oh, Dom will do the awards. Dom will, Dom will do the, the prize giving because Dom's hilarious. Dom will just do a little speech. Think, oh God, leave me alone. <laughs> Here's my prediction. In five years time, when you uh, your books are, are selling in their millions and well, your uh... screenplays are, are all over the place, which they, they should be and will be, that'll be where you will get your moment because they will go, author of uh, yes, this book and everything like that. And that then you be... come on and then they'll be going, oh, my God. Yes. Now, that will be, you know what, Paul, but that's the holy grail, okay, for any artist is to have something that you can be, you can, you, you, you know, to have something which is instantly recognisable. So, you know, Barker had the two Ronnies and he had, he had porridge, okay, two fabulous pieces of work, you know, and... Um, and that's what we all crave and that's what we're all aspiring for. And, and even though most of us don't make it, you're better off having tried. Um, and even if you part, if you, if you pop your clogs and it didn't happen, you, that life is better than, than not having tried. And, and that's where I live, Paul. And, and when you, you, you say it in a nice, in a, in a supportive way, and it would be fabulous. And I'd love one of my books to hit and then, you know, energize the others. Um, and that's what I'm working towards, and I'm very seduced by. However, the likelihood of it happening, we all know, is remote because there's so many books out there. There's only so few, so few books that make it, so so few comedians who make it. But that doesn't that doesn't detract me. That 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 doesn't prevent me at all from trying. Yeah, but the odds against uh, anything in the creative industry are already the odds of you having become a comedian, as we discussed earlier, yeah. were. <laughs> Pretty astronomical. That Jackson's Lane Community Centre. Yes. Where are those thirty other people now? You know, and it's true. The odds are thing. But I mean, I wanted to go on to your books because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your books. And and recently, I I read one which is one of my favourites, which is I Gabriel, which oh, is an extraordinary tale which just whisks you on this journey uh, now well i'm so pleased to hear you say it because when everyone's read my books it's always eclipsed only in america and the fruit bowl okay those are the three books that are, are most successful i gabriel is my most unrecognized book and it's uh, I, I did a podcast recently and someone asked me what's the best book you've ever written and i said i gabriel even better than eclipsed i think it's my best novel i, I you know and and i'm and i'm so very heartened to hear you say that thank you 
Well, no, I, well, it took me on an extraordinary journey. And by the way, I, I read it in two days because, I mean, it was unputdownable because, and I, I had this, I, I spend my life with this mantra in my head saying I'm the luckiest person in the world. And, and I was deeply moved and entertained by the whole story. And I won't give away the story because it's a fabulous story with a twist at the end. Mm. Um, because it's a window on how lucky we are. Mm. And we, I don't think, can conceive of somebody who wakes up on the street and that is them for the day. Um, yeah, no, it's extraordinary. Okay, my books, Paul, are kernels of ideas that gestate for many years. And I used to play the comedy store back in the day, and the late show started at 12. It now starts at 10. So the late show used to start at 12 o'clock. I know. Invariably last, or, you know, so I'd go on at quarter to two in the morning. I used to resent that enormously, that that Don and Kim would put us through that arger. Anyway, I used to do the gigs. I'd walk back to my car because it was the, the time when the politicians hadn't, hadn't stopped us driving bloody in London. So you could park on the Strand. You could park on Waterloo Bridge. You could park on Regent Street. It was, you know, you could drive in. And I used to walk back to my car and walk past all these homeless people. And I'd have a big fistful of cash in my pocket from doing the gigs. And I always, that was always something which I couldn't reconcile. And, and that's when that story started to take hold in my head as a young man. And I, I, I always loved the idea, wouldn't it be extraordinary if a rich person had an encounter with a homeless person and it changed his life? Not the homeless person, but the rich person. So that was the kernel for, for I, Gabriel. And then over the years, I obviously was, it was percolating away. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think it's a beautiful story for Gabriel and what happened to him and, and its outcome. And it's very prescient. It's very of the moment because it's, it involves very sort of contentious subjects at the moment. And, and uh, I, I, I thought the book would get, would get picked up not by publishers. I published it myself, but I thought it would be picked up by readers and it would be, it, it was sort of in the area of not controversy, but certainly, certainly, you know, um, modern themes and tropes. But it wasn't I, completely missed. <laughs> well, well, no, but everything has its time. So actually, yeah. I think it will, you know, because as you say, it, it is very of the moment now. I think you may have been slightly ahead of the curve. Right. And now people First need to ever. catch up with it. No, uh, no but it, it's true. I, I, I actually found I found it deeply moving because it made me think. And I it, I. I ended up having an encounter with a, a homeless person whilst I was reading it. Now, oh, wow. I don't think that would have happened because the, there's a part of the mind, which is the reticular activating system, right. whereby when you are, say you're looking for a certain car yeah, and you have it in your mind, you will see that car wherever oh, you yes. go. That. That's yes. called the reticular activating system. And I, I came out of uh, my local train station and a guy came up to me and he he said, you're the first person who stopped in two hours. Mm -hmm. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was intrigued from a, a psychological perspective about his approach. Now, he looked like your typical thing. He did, then did something to me, which is very interesting on the communication level. Hmm. Now, obviously, I just read I, Gabriel. So I'm now primed in this to think about how are these people thinking and what's happened. And a couple of things, the way he communicated with me, changed my whole perspective on everything. I was initially, you know, I'm going to uh, respect him and acknowledge him, which, yeah. by the way, is the most important thing you can do with anybody mm. who's homeless. And, and then just he said a couple of things and I went to shake his hand, which I know is relevant in, 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 in the yes. book. And he said, I won't shake your hand because I've got too much respect for you. And I sleep oh. in a bin. Oh, my God. That's, oh, my God. Well, that's, okay, so that's incredibly poignant and 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 relevant to I, Gabriel. Very relevant to I, Gabriel. But it, had I not read I, Gabriel, would I have just passed by and go, gone, no, mate, I'm, on, I'm in a hurry? Yes. Which we all fall into. So I, Gabriel, actually not only entertained, but it actually changed my whole psychological profile. Wow, well, Paul, that's very heartening. And but I have to say that man, that man demonstrated extraordinary um, intelligence, didn't he? Then yes, emotional intelligence and humanity. Then to say that to you, because had you shaken his hand, certainly, and because you know, obviously, I wrote I Gabriel, so a lot of his neuroses were mine. You know, mm. as the author. Um, if I shake a homeless person's hand, I am now thinking I must go and wash my hands. Yeah. So he's going to compromise my, my day. I can't now have a packet of crisps. I can't buy a sandwich. I've got to go and wash my hands. I mean, there's sanitizer everywhere now, so you yeah. <laughs> don't worry about it so much. But it, that, but you, there's, there's a scene in, in I, Gabriel, which people, when they write, I get lovely letters from people, and they often make, the, make mention of the fact that 
the, the ending confounded all their all their expectations. But there's a scene where Gabriel sits with Troy in the underpass at Park Lane. And again, that's completely born out of my experiences because thank God for corporate gigs. If I didn't have corporate gigs, Paul, I mean, you've been very generous about my career, but you know, the reality is if I didn't have corporate gigs, gigs in a suit, I probably would had, wouldn't be been able to write any of the books I've written because they've allowed me the money to have the time off from the circuit and doing those corporate gigs where I'm paid 10 times what I get paid at a club. And then I'll come down to the underpass on the way home. That's even more of a contrast, right? From, from the comedy store, you get 200 quid a gig to doing a gig in a hotel when you're in a suit. And then you see people in Park Lane, the wealthiest square meterage of land in the, anywhere in the world, up there with Manhattan and you know parts of Tokyo, I guess. That's really arresting, where you think these people have got bugger all. They're living in this, in this windswept tunnel. And I'm going to go back to my, my nice warm house in leafy West London, you know. So I've, I drew, so in my novels, I do draw upon all of my, I think I make observations, not obliquely, but they, I must make them and they must be stored and I can draw upon them when I'm writing. What I love about my books, Paul, is every book I've got coming out is the one. I spend a lot of time writing them, getting them right, getting them into the position that I think they're in good shape. And then I have so much hope and expectation, um, which is never normally, it doesn't normally, it's not normally fulfilled, but that still served a very important purpose because that book will have carried two years of my time. And then there's a huge expectation and hope that it might be the one, the breakthrough book. And the disappointment is never as, as high as the excitement before I publish. So that, so it is, they're always worth doing. From a psychological perspective, 90 95% of all our emotions, both positive and negative, are influenced by how we talk to ourselves. And it sounds like you have a wonderfully I... optimistic attitude. I mean, is that important in order to be able to keep on, you know? Yes. Uh... No, I think it's essential, Paul. I'm a big self-talker, and I think it's essential. I'm happily deluded which I think, I think is, a, is, is a thing. And I think if you're not delusional, you're probably a bitter person, mm. you know? And I've, I think I'm quite a lucky person because I am so excited at the prospect of being successful, okay? That's a good thing because it means you're going to produce output. Equally, I am delighted when I see someone who's really good. Okay, so if I see Kevin Bridges as a young stand-up do, doing these arenas, there's not a part of me that's resentful. I think, good for you, mate. He is a brilliant stand-up. I get a bit frustrated when I see people who I think are really pony, who are heralded. I, am, I do get frustrated when I see people on TV who've got no right to be on TV. I think that's always a little bit um, irksome. However, they have to live with themselves. You know, and if they know that there's a false laugh track, they know that that's not, that's not their cutaway, they know that they're supported by the edit, then that's something they've got to reconcile themselves. Um, when you put um, McIntyre on stage, you don't worry about the edit because you know he's going to make the room laugh. Well, I mean, I, I like to, and I think that's very relevant to the whole Humorology project. I, I think the attitude is glorying in good people's success. Yeah, I mean, right. really, and there, and there is room for everyone. Now, are there people who are better than others? Well, you could argue that it's just not to our taste. Sure. You, so, but the idea that 
you know, it's the old actors gag, isn't it? You know, how many actors does it take to screw in a light bulb? Ten, one to screw in the light bulb and nine to go. That should have been me up there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very funny. I like that a lot. I mean, actors are very, I think, tend to be more earnest, over earnest, I think, as a profession. You know, it, it is, a merit, it, it, well, I, I was going to say it's a meritocracy. I don't think it is anymore. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I think the funniest people aren't the ones who are who are getting the breaks. It, 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 that's not. Let me qualify that. There are people who 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 like McIntyre who can break down any barriers that are put in front of him. He was so effortlessly funny; they had to take him on board. They couldn't ignore him. So you you can just you can confound all all rules if you like. You know, largely, in, but in terms of live comedy. Audiences are pretty discerning. And once you're on stage, it's down to you. And you're as funny as you're as funny, you know. And that's a that's a nice way to make a living, Paul, because, you know, you don't need someone's opinion. It's just whether they laughed or not. Yeah. You know, that, that's that's it. That's that that's the outcome. Did they laugh? They laughed. That's good. You're in good shape. You Instant know? feedback. Yeah. It's, it's a, that's a feedback look. Um, I know that because uh, I read um, your wonderful book, Eclipsed, when it first came out, because you were kind enough to um, uh, let me see a preview copy yes. um, when it came out. But now I hear that Eclipsed is coming out as an audio, a special audio book with you and your son, um, Tom Holland, uh, yeah. Spider-Man, talking about it because it actually chronicles the, yeah. the whole of his um Young life, really. He kind of does. I mean, Tom was spotted as, as an eight-year-old, and then he became he became Peter Parker as a nineteen-year-old. So, um, and it was all it was all a fluke. So the, the, the story, I certainly didn't write a memoir about how clever my son is. What I wrote the memoir of is I had best laid plans to make it in Hollywood. I sold three scripts. I'd written three screenplays. They all got sold, and I thought, wow, I'm going to become the new Richard Curtis. And that clearly didn't transpire. And in the meantime, with no plans, whatever, my son, my eldest son, Tom, um, has gone on to become, I don't like saying movie star, but he is, you know, I don't like false modesty. The kid is a, is a movie star. And that's a very funny story because, um, you know, you know, like, like, like ships in the night, we passed and he has, his trajectory is extraordinary and I've been hanging on. So I called it eclipsed and it's a very affectionate story. And I wrote it, as, and it's been successful. It's been read all over the world, and people have been very kind about it. But the audio book, um, I always imagined would be um, a bit of a... People have asked me many, many times, will you, will you do the audio book? And so I was with Tom one day, and I said, Tom, would you... If I did the audio book, would you, could we catch up at the end of every other chapter and reminisce? And he said, sure, because he loved the book. He read it. And he, he did say to me, Dad, this is a chronicle of my life. And I'll have forgotten a lot of the stuff if you hadn't written this book. So I think it's an important book for him. He's really affectionate about it. So the audio book is really, it's, it's, it's written, read by Dom and in conversation with Tom. That's how I'm put pitching it, if you like. Oh, that's nice. Read and... by Dom and in conversation with Tom. That's good. <laughs> Lovely. By the way, as, as, a, as a pitch doctor, it's perfect. Yes. Well, that's 19th of June. It comes out in International Father's Day. So it's going to be available then. It's being, it can be, people are pre-ordering it now. You know, I, I'm really hopeful, Paul, because if you want to if you want to know how Tom Holland became Spider-Man, you know, this is the seminal work. I mean, there are there will there will be other biographies. There will be 
things cobbled together, probably from stuff I've written in the past. But this is the work from the horse's mouth, the word. And it's it's a very it's a very unlikely story about an ordinary family uh, experiencing very unusual circumstances. Because even Tom's agents on the West Coast say to me, what's happened to Tom is once in a generation, you know, and and who knew? And Nikki and I feel very numb that it's happened to us. Well, it's it's I mean, I'd encourage everybody to to go out and do it because a, it's such a, a wonderful story, but it you beautifully encapsulate your bemused irony. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it is bemusing. Okay. It, no, it is because through the book, the book is 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 hinges on my expecting it always to end. And I, that wasn't me being defeatist. It was just me being a realist. I thought these things do not happen to our family. And yet he kept getting through every hoop and he kept finding himself being cast. And I kept thinking, bloody hell, he's, this is bloody hell. You know, oh, my God. And I'd be in I'd be in Thailand. I'd be in New York with him because I used to travel with him. You see, when he was a young lad, now he's on his own where he has his brother to go with him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a story of of impossible odds and, and a, a euphoric ending because Tom I speak to Tom every other day, even though he has this gilded life. We, we're in touch all the time. We're best mates. And it's a lovely, lovely story. And I'm very confident about giving it to anyone that, that they'll, they'll enjoy it. Well, even if you're, if you're a, a parent, I think you'll enjoy it. I, I, what I loved about it, and this relates back to what we were talking about early on, you want your children to be happy and safe. Mm. Yeah. And really, uh, the kernel of the book is you saying to him at each stage don't get your hopes up son. Yeah. yes no that, and that that's that that is actually i mean i embellish okay i embellish for comic effect because yes. not all my books are funny okay so i gave okay. interesting about your your podcast for humology i gabriel we just thought we discussed there's there's elements of humor in i gabriel but it's i wouldn't describe it as a funny book i would describe it as a drama a very compelling quick to read drama absolutely um but i will put humor in there where I think it's appropriate and I can find humor. Eclipsed I wrote as a funny book. Okay. So it's supposed to be a comic take on fatherhood and the extraordinary thing that happened to this dad and to this son. And so I've written it as funny as I can. And um, there are some moments in there where I look back now and I hoot at what, at what I did and what I, what I, what I experienced the, 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 the Thai meal brings to mind where I was in PP at Christmas with my wife and kids and we were amongst all of these very uber posh German Swiss bankers with their identikit wives and their boy and girl all with blonde hair and we have these we have this unusual looking couple from England with four boys and it just was so comic that we were in this beautiful resort but we were only there by virtue of the fact that Tom was making a movie we weren't there because we could afford to go there we could never afford to go to Thailand at Christmas and then and then having to go to the banqueting manager and say look you know this um this mandatory meal we're having on christmas eve yes sir it comes with the booking and it was like it was like 700 quid for dinner and i said to him so listen mate we shouldn't be here i can't afford 700 pounds for dinner and i said we're very small we don't eat much <laughs> and i actually had this conversation with this south african hotelier anyway we went to the meal that night and obviously, one, I, I don't know, he maybe gave me 100 quid off. And so I said to the family, right, you can't eat for two days. We have to be starving when we go for this meal. <laughs> and Patrick, my youngest, 
who will have no memory of this at all because he would have been five at the time. The next morning at breakfast, this very sort of regal looking German guy with a fedora hat. He had no socks. He had moccasins. He had, he, they were all rich. The whole place was full of rich people. And he said to me, I was very amused last night watching your boys eating. I don't think I've ever seen a boy eat so many prawns in my life. <laughs> Oh my god! If a patron has noticed this, then I'll tell you everything. That little bastard. <laughs> so in the book, I'm able to embellish and tell these stories, and they are comic. They are very, very, very comic stories. The story in the Ivy on the Shore, when I was having, they were they were campaigning for an Oscar win, and I was. Tom had been in a movie called The Impossible, which you may have seen, Paul. So. Yeah true story of the Bellon family, a lovely family from Spain. And Tom played the eldest son. And the, basically the story is the, 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 the tsunami hit the hotel where they were staying and Maria and, and Lucas were split from the family. They were two kilometers from the hotel when they emerged above the, the waterline. So they went through all sorts of carnage and it was a shocking thing. And, um, and I was at this this very illustrious restaurant in California. Pierce Brosnan was there. Loads of famous people were there. And I sat next to this incredibly beautiful woman. She had been a supermodel back in the day, sort of Christy Brinkley of her time. And she was very well preserved. She, she was about 65, but she was stunning. And we were chatting and she got it into her head that I was the father in, in real life. So I wasn't the father of the actor who played. The, uh, she, she got into the head that I was the guy who had survived the tsunami. And I didn't want to correct her because I thought it was a bit embarrassing. So I just sort of played along. <laughs> <laughs> so for 25 minutes, I was fielding questions from this woman about how I survived the tsunami. And I even started showing her scars on my arm. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. It was so stupid that I, I, that I, I didn't just fess up and say, look, you got me confused. I'm the father of the actor. Anyway. And, and then um, Kike, Enrique, the real life father, was welcomed onto the stage to make a little speech. So, of course, it was just awkward. It was just, it was horrendous for me. She, she looked at me with disdain. <laughs> so, uh, but again, how I got into that, it's the scrapes I get into. I mean, I should have just been honest and said, you know, but I didn't. I thought it'd been polite to just play along and cajole this lady along. And it turned out to be a complete, bloody cul-de-sac and it was a nightmare so, so I, i'm very affectionate about the stories in eclipsed and the, the fact that i worked with elton john back in the day in 1994 elton and i i was doing the warm-up for the brit awards he was presenting the brit awards had you said to me then paul that elton john is going to write a musical called billy elliot which hadn't even been made then but billy elliot would make elton john many 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 millions of pounds and yet Billy Elliot would have a far bigger impact on me, the warm-up man. I would have been stuck, staggered. But in fact, that's the case because Tom played Billy in the West End and Tom playing Billy was, was a step towards Tom playing Peter Parker. So the impact of Billy Elliot on my life has been so much more seismic than it has on Elton's because all it is for Elton is more noughts, right? But he's got so many noughts. It's all, it's all the same, right? You can buy another watch, buy another car, buy another castle, buy some more flowers. Whereas my life is irrevocably changed because my son's Spider-Man. And, and uh, I think you've handled it beautifully, not just in the book and now soon to be audio book Eclipsed, but you've talked about it on stage. And I, I remember uh, we did a gig together only mm. a, a few years ago uh, when you do you. You talked about it so beautifully yes. about how what people remember from comedy shows. Yeah. And you've got to be careful because I would I would. 
all of my instincts recoil from aren't I a clever dad and isn't my son talented? You can make your own minds up about whether you like Tom and you can make your own minds up. But I certainly wouldn't be there. You know, this is how I did it. I wouldn't be writing that book at all. The Eclipse is not how I how Tom became Spider-Man. How or, or, it's not how I made Tom Spider-Man. It's how it it's out how it happened. And then um and it's it was just it was just, just a series of serendipitous things. And you know, you know what? If you said to me back in the day, Paul, when I you mentioned earlier on in, in, in my introduction in 93 when Yon Magnuson, who's the producer of Graham Norton's show, he gave me the best newcomer award. And he was very kind, Yon. And I was heralded then, and and I I really thought I was going to make it. I really thought I was going to become a sort of theater household name stand-up. Like a smash of rooms. I thought, well, I may as well just go and smash theater rooms. I'll become famous. And and that that didn't transpire. But my God, if you'd offered me arena tours and um and, and and millions of pounds or four kids still married and tom's who he is i mean 100 percent, i'd have chosen that 100 percent, because because my, my my comedy is my hobby really and i love being a comedian love being a humorist but i've been a far more successful dad than i have been comedian and that is more important to me than than anything and, and what is real wealth you know, that, well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a good question, and, that, and that, that's an obvious answer, right? Well, health is wealth, right? We all have health and take it for granted, but also, you know, a happy family is is real wealth as well. Because I would hate to be one of these dads or stand up comics who's hugely famous but flying around the world with you know, you know, just a rubbish home life, actually. But is laughter the lifeblood? of any relationship and any home home life as well. Well, I, I'm not, not sure I say lifeblood. It's certainly a, ma- a major contingent. And, and you have to, if you're going for dinner and you haven't got, you can't think of anything to say to your kids or, 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 or partner, then you're in, not in great shape. And laughter is, is, is a good glue. It's a good, it's a good coagulant for people. Yeah, you know, something we all share. Because, you know, I mean, Nikki watches films I can't watch. She watches Bridgerton. I can't watch Bridgerton. Wild Horses could not bring me in the room, to drag me in the room to watch it, you know? Me um, but we all laugh together. And so th- so it's a it's a bonding experience. And and, um, and and funny is funny, right? So I wouldn't watch Bridgerton, but she wouldn't watch, you know, a movies that I would like to watch, you know? But we can, we can find common ground and, and enjoy humour. But that's really interesting because uh, you've talked about it in the sense of um, uh, a household and, and a successful marriage and family. But in business, I think it's the same thing. It, 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 it needs to be there. If you had to write a business case for humour, wouldn't you include those same things? Well, you would, but, it, but, but it's a dangerous thing to, 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 to try and take on. Even someone like Jeff Bezos, when he's presenting at Davos, say, Okay, he will be backstage. He's the richest man in the world. He probably would love to have a couple of bangers in his speech. Okay, and he probably would use, he probably would fly me in and have an hour with me because I could read his speech and say, right, okay, so here's two laugh lines for you. Okay, and they will get you laugh. So you say this in this order and you pause before and you're going to get a big laugh. That's very valuable for Bezos because Bezos, everyone sees him as a robot. And it's this money machine. If he can make people laugh, then there's going to be a huge change and, yeah. and, and affection for him. 
So, um, and, and you know, look at, just look at the adverts on telly, pr- practically two thirds of adverts try and go for humor. So when because it's a state stuff, change, isn't it? Because yeah. if you can change somebody's state, it's much easier to persuade them, isn't it? I guess so. And, and if you can entertain them, then, then, then you're going to create affection. If, ah, you know, that's nice. And, and um, you know, humor, if you, if, if, it, if, it, if you can create, if you can, if you can make people laugh, it, it, obviously, my mind's a real acid test because I'm a professional comedian. You know, there, there is a, there's, a, there's an expectation there. However, in, in the world of business with keynotes and what have you, I mean, I did a big dinner for, for Boopa one year at, um, in Birmingham. I was hosting their conference and doing some stand-up. And I sat with the CEO before her keynote and I gave her some lines. I, lo- I read her speech and I said, right, okay, if you say this here and you do this here. And she came off stage and said to me, oh, my God. That was absolutely fantastic. Now, I, I, you know, that was all. So, if I could, if you can, if you could sell that, I mean, if I had the energy, Paul, I would try and maybe make that a section of my website so keynotes can use Dominic Holland. I'll turn up at your conference and I'll sit for you with you for an hour. But it's just whether you get the gig. But it's a very powerful thing. Well, I think it's worth thinking about because I think people desperately uh, need that. And with all that experience, that, the yeah. thing is with experience is that you can just look at something. It's the same way I can look at somebody on stage and go stand like this, do like that, thought process yeah. like this. But the, comedically, you know where the gag lies. Yeah. And also the gag, you see their speech and go, here's the aside. It's not a gag. But this will work as an aside. It's, yes. it's 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 intrinsic to the flow of it. Fabulous. Dominic, we've reached a point in the show which we like to call quick fire questions. Okay. Quick fire questions. Who's the funniest business person that you've met? That would have to be the um the then CEO of Gillette. Okay, so uh, I will tell you a quick story. Um, I published a book called The Ripple Effect, which Great is book. my funniest book that I've ever written, funniest novel that I've ever written. He was reading it on holiday and ended up in hospital as a result of reading The Ripple Effect. <laughs> he was drinking a beer by his villa, as you do, because he's the CEO of Gillette. And he was enjoying the book an awful lot. And he got to a point in the book where he was having a beer and he laughed so much, it um, bruised his esophagus. And he was in so much pain, he went to hospital. So I would say, and then, and then he came back to London. And it, I don't know how I got to know about it, but it, it got into the newspapers. I was excited. I thought it was going to be a brilliant story. It's going to launch my book. But he booked me on the basis of my book to do a gig. And and uh, we had a nice exchange and I was very grateful to him for having read it. And um, so yeah, I can't remember his name now, but he is the funniest. He's got the best sense of humor because he liked my book. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant story as well. Uh, bruised esophagus. Bruised esophagus. Uh, yes. What book makes you laugh, Dom? Uh, that I, I guess would have to be uh, any of the Tom Sharps. Um, my dad had a big impact on me. Um, as a as a young man, because my dad used to laugh riotously at reading Tom Sharp, Great. and so I was always beguiled by how the, this 
this book could make my dad laugh so much. We went on holiday in Norfolk one year on the on the broads on a boat holiday, and my dad was just sitting in a deck chair, just in hysterics. And I thought that was an extraordinary thing to do. So I read Sharp with that in mind, and I can see with Porterhouse Blue and some of. I mean, it's not entirely my style of comedy, my style of writing, but I do think I can see why people laugh at, at Sharp. Brilliant. What film makes you laugh? My favourite comedy film of all time is My Cousin Vinny. Very un unheralded. I think it stacks Joe up. Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci, Marissa Tomei, uh, Fred Gwim, now gone, uh, written by Dale Lorna, who I was in touch with. I, I think it's a, an ensemble cast, a peerless script, directed by Jonathan Lynn, now gone. Um, better than anything that Judd Apatow has ever written better than anything that's been written by a British comedy writer. Um, I think it's a fabulous film. Very, very comic. Great resolution. Just, just perfect piece of comedy writing. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick shift to the other side briefly and, and uh, ask what's not funny. I suppose, I suppose the dark comedies, I, I think I would be happy to mention. So the movie, the favorite, um, with the Greek director, that movie was apparently funny with um, about Queen Elizabeth saying C-U-N-T, you know, continually. I didn't find that. I mean, I'm not bothered about swearing. If I watch um, Mike Wilmot do stand up, he swears all the time. And I think it's absolutely in keeping and he's really funny. So I, I'm not a prude, but I don't think, you know, having Queen Victoria say the C-bomb makes it a humorous film. And so when people praise those films, I think that's the Emperor's New Clothes. That's, that's the going to the Royal Academy and seeing the summer exhibition and seeing artwork that needs to be guarded by, by security guards because people think it's not even a piece of art. It's just, a, it's just a, a piece of decorators. Someone's left a bucket or something and people just move it. So, so that for me is the Emperor's New Clothes, that sort of comedy. And I, I, I have no patience for it at all. What word makes you laugh, Dom? Hippopotamus. I think it's just it's just a beautifully <laughs> melodic. You know, yeah. they are, they look funny. They they they. I think it's hilarious that they are the most dangerous land mammal, and just seem to get away with it. You know, we we all hate rats and snakes, but it's actually the hippos who are killing us, and uh, we love them. What sound makes you laugh? Well, you know, I'm going to sound a bit bass here, but you're never going to get anything quite as funny as a fart. I mean, it's always funny. And don't tell me it isn't, because it is. It is <laughs> always funny. And it, it always will be funny. And I'm a professional humorist, so I should be a little bit more discerning. But no, happy to go base. <laughs> it's funny. Would you rather be considered clever or funny? 100% um, funny. There is a big branch of comedians now who are obsessive with how clever they are. And I have never understood that. Peter, Peter Cook was very clever because he went to Oxford. So we know he's clever, but he was very funny. And, he, 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 and it was his funniness that made him a famous person. And I have very little time for, oh God, he's very clever. I think I don't care how clever he is. I want my oncologist to be clever. I, I do not need my comedians to be clever. I need them to be funny. 
That's all I need. I, I would argue, having known you for many years, that you are clever. And in order to actually write those brilliant books and deliver that brilliant stand-up, you need a level of clever in there as well. I think you hide your clever light under a bushel. A very big bushel. <laughs> and finally, Dom, desert island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? I, I think in terms of, I've already said earlier on, I think Seinfeld's observation, there's no such thing as family entertainment, I think is, is in essence beautiful. But my, my I think my favourite line on the circuit was by Arge Barker, who is um, an American Indian guy, cool looking, really attractive and plays on it, plays on it enormously. He's got a big, big hit with the ladies, is Arj Barker. And he has this brilliant line, and he says, I'm going to be a really big success in comedy. I figure I'm going to be so successful that my wife is not even born yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I... <laughs> that's a wrong joke, but it's a very funny joke. Very, very funny joke. It's brilliant. And it makes you do that. That's absolutely fantastic. What a way to end it. You you have created so much affection. You've created so much joy. I thank you, Dom, thank for you, being Paul. a wonderful guest on the Humorology podcast. The Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.